Welcome to Coffee and Conservation, hosted by Dr. Beth Baker, Assistant Extension Professor in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture at Mississippi State University. From water and soil to habitat and food production, Dr. Baker and her guests discuss the necessity and complexity of conservation in the U.S. All right. Welcome back for season two of Coffee and Conservation. It's hard to believe a whole season is already done, and we're trying to switch gears a little bit with season two. So if you listened back and and looked at the episodes for season one, you'll see uh, we've got a number of different professors from the university um, and graduate students on on that season, and I'm trying this season to have more farmers on. Now, they are busy, so it's harder to get them into the podcast studio, but we are very lucky to have Mr. Johnny Ray here with us today. Uh, He is the owner and manager of High Hope Farms out of Cedar Bluff, Mississippi. So thank you, Johnny, for being here. Thank you. Yes, and um, so we're going to talk all about how he's been managing his farm and kind of how he got started in farming, things like that. And then if you jump to the episodes following this one, you're going to hear a little bit more about his current farming system um, and kind of his journey through the process because I know it's it's been um, probably a learning process, I'm sure. Very much. So. <laughs> All right. So, you know, I'm always so curious how people get into the work they do. I know that I've had uh, – an unplanned road that I've just keep on following. So can you give our listeners a brief history of how you came to be a farmer? Well, sure. I guess in some ways I've always kind of felt like farming was sort of in the, my DNA. Uh, both my grandparents uh, were farmers. Uh, my grandfather on my dad's side farmed very near us. My grandfather on my mother's side died when I was very young, but I knew they were farmers, and we spent time as children at their farms. I've had uh, uncles and aunts who were still in farming and still have a few cousins in farming. But uh, my dad didn't go into farming. I think he wanted to, but he came home from World War II and had hoped to buy a farm, but it didn't work out. And so he moved to town and got a job, and, you know, that was his history. But he always made sure that we spent time at my grandfather's and at the farm it just came a part of life growing up but uh, early on my life took another direction I went to college uh, majored in political science went to seminary majored in theology uh, served as a pastor for a while always had an affinity uh, for the farmers in my church and would spend time helping them on their farm and then later I became the director of my denomination's uh, humanitarian response fund doing both emergency relief work, but also sustainable development work. And a lot of that took me overseas where we worked in agricultural development projects. And uh, that it was just kind of always a part of who I was. And I had this dream, this vision of, you know, owning a farm. And so back in the 1980s, I was able to buy this small piece of land in Clay County. Uh, but we really didn't farm it. It was just sort of a getaway place. Uh, but uh, Right, 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago, actually, my wife, Deb, said, you know, we really, if we want to do this, we need to do it. So we had a kind of a major life change and moved from very busy jobs in Indianapolis uh, to uh, our farm in Cedar Bluff, and we've been there now for right at 10 years. 
this is always my favorite question of the podcast because I learned so much about people that I didn't know. Like I had no idea that you went to seminary or a pastor for yeah. a while or that you majored in political science or uh, got to do humanitarian work all over the world, which is pretty cool, or that you lived in Indianapolis. So yeah, that's where our were... church's headquarters were. Okay. Now, I wasn't there very much because I tr- when I took this job, I was in it for about 17 years, and I traveled a whole lot, about – you know, three weeks out of every month I was on the road, and a good bit of that was overseas. Uh, and like I said, I always had a special affinity for the work we did, whether it was Central America, Africa, the Balkans, working with small farmers. Was your family from Mississippi originally? Yes, okay. yes, yes. And then you were up in yes. Indianapolis for yeah. work. And okay. I've been in Kentucky and Tennessee, too, before I went to Indianapolis. Wow. Yeah, that is fascinating. Yeah. But gives you certainly plenty of different perspectives to bring back by the right. time you, you and Deb moved to the farm yeah. in Cedar Bluff, Mississippi. Yeah. What's the population of Cedar Bluff for our listeners? <laughs> oh, well, we actually live in Metro <laughs> Cedar Bluff. We're about four miles from the post office, so I'm not even sure that uh, we've been counted yet. <laughs> yeah, it's very, it's That's pretty a, rural. It's a great place to live, but it's a very small area. Yeah, and I've been out there. It's beautiful. Yeah. It is. Um so when you and Deb first moved out to the farm then, you know, you said your families had farmed. You had a little bit of little bit of knowledge. Um, where did you start? Where, what was the, you know, so you got how many acres? 38. We, we, we started out with 30 acres. I bought this farm in 1980, and it was 30 acres, and we've since added eight acres. So we, we're now at 38. Mm-hmm. So 38 acres, so not huge, but plenty of land yeah. to do a yeah. lot of work on yeah um and farming can take a lot of different directions some folks would move into crops or have a specific animal in mind what was your vision at that point when you started you know when we first started we really we weren't we didn't know we weren't sure and i'll have to say you know there's a lot of trial and error getting started but after we moved back and just kind of looking at what we had and you know, what were we going to do? One is we had to realize we were in our mid-50s. So, you know, mm-hmm. we felt like we had enough good years to do something, but not young enough to, you know, do everything. Uh, I had actually a good friend of mine in Tennessee. He was a member of the church I served, and I spent a lot of time with him on his farm. And he had given me four bread heifers. And uh, this was when I was still working in Indianapolis. And I remember saying, Bill, I really appreciate this, but, you know, I travel all the time. You know, how am I going to take care of four bread heifers? And his response was, I don't know, boy, you'll figure something out, which is kind of a good motto for farming. You know, you have problems or things come up and you, you figure something out. And so uh, actually my cows had been with a – I had a neighbor that was utilizing part of our farm to graze cattle on, and he cut hay on it. And so our cows were just running with his cattle – and then, you know, he would sell the steers every year and all that. But after we moved back, uh, we actually had uh, one steer that had not been sold. And we thought, let's. we were really interested in local mm-hmm. food and, and more concerned about issues around eating and nutrition and health. So we decided we would take this one steer and we would uh, raise it ourselves and, and have it processed and we would have our own beef. And we did, and uh, we really liked it, and we gave some to some friends and family, and they liked it and said, if you ever do this again, you know, let us know. I mean, we would be interested in buying some. And so uh, we thought, you know, as we looked at our farm and, and what it was, we thought maybe this is what we need to do is just try to 
uh, as to how do do grass-fed beef. Mm-hmm. We'd been reading about grass-fed as opposed to grain-fed or traditionally, conventionally, industrially raised beef. And so a couple of years later, we had three steers, and we sold three of them. And the next year, there were five, and you know now we're doing 20 or 25 a year. So it just sort of grew from having that one steer and putting it up to deciding this is probably what would fit best for us on this little our little postage stamp of land here in Clay County. It's kind of symbolic that you really just started with one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. from the ground up. And yeah. the the motto of learn as you go I think is is important for listeners. Oh to Lord, hear. and we've learned, you know, so much since then. I mean, we didn't know anything really about rotational grazing, adaptive grazing, uh, multi species and you know, so we've certainly grown not only in the numbers cows that we're doing but we've added species and you know doing you know some of these uh, other uh, uh, grazing patterns like intentional gra- uh, rotational grazing and mm-hmm. adaptive grazing etc and you know so much of the the institutional knowledge of farming around agribusiness yeah. is is built in some of the more industrial farm um that scale of farming. So when it comes to a family farm and a family farm size and the differences in pieces of property as you buy them, how they were managed previous to when you bought them, when you get it, how you might change, that you almost have to learn as you go because there is not a book on that. There's not a a neighbor that has the the exact same experience as you're about to embark on. Um, So I think that's just an important point for any of our listeners, whether they're landowners or not. To, I think it's very important. And I would say if any of our neighbors thought about what we were doing at all, I don't think they gave much thought to what we were doing. They knew it was different uh, and probably thought we were at best hobby farmers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some, you know, maybe thought it was a little weird. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's, I guess, part of it. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. A lot, of, a lot of the farmers that I meet that are uh, – uh, taking on their farm systems and being a bit innovative. Um, when I ask them what their neighbors think, like, they think I'm weird. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think one of the guys that we read is Joel Salatin, and I think he refers to himself as a lunatic farmer. And I think <laughs> that was the name that his neighbors gave to him, you know. Yeah, but now you've had this place for 20 years, so you've had some success. So, yeah. despite, you know, what might be different about the process the path you took in the farm system that you've built, it's been successful so far. And I feel like that's yeah. an important point, yeah. too, that it's working for you and yeah. Deb. Yeah. Um, what was the property like when you bought it? What kind of shape was it in? Uh, it had actually been owned by a veterinarian and his wife, and they raised horses and dogs. And uh, I think in the last year or two before we bought it, it, I wouldn't say it had been neglected, but they were busy moving a practice to another part of the state. Uh, pretty, I wouldn't say totally overgrown, but the pastures hadn't been maintained very well. Fences hadn't been maintained. So we had to do some work just getting things kind of ready. Uh, probably in some places it had been overgrazed a bit. Uh, it, I would just kind of say sort of, generally neglected to a degree mm-hmm. uh yeah so and we, we that had takes to do a lot, lot of management. in terms of fencing and, and kind of reorganizing the place 
Okay. So infrastructure too. Infrastructure, yeah. Did you have the equipment on hand to start turning well, pastures over? Or? Tra- we had a tractor. And mm-hmm. We had a little, when we bought the farm, I, I was able to purchase a, an older tractor, you know, stuff like a, a disc and a bush hog and a few other pieces. So, and we were able to do most of it ourselves. I did have to get somebody to come in and with a dozer and do some clearing between mm-hmm. the house and barn just because it had gotten overgrown so badly. Yeah. So definitely some work to do on the front yeah. end to even yeah. get it ready. So starting with the one steer, now you've got um, 25-ish? Yeah, right now we're at 21, but that it, it'll, it'll, it'll go up and down as we're you know selling and then buying. But during the wintertime, we try to keep somewhere between 20 and 25 mm-hmm. to winter. Was there a point as you were learning and the farm was growing um, – where where you really where your vision changed oh yes because initially uh the few cows that we had just grazed there was not any real effort at rotate you know intensive managed rotational grazing mm-hmm. so our whole way of just grazing the animals has changed significantly mm-hmm. i mean significantly uh and, and later on, we learned how important it was to not just have one species, but to have multi-species, and, and we've, you know, done that. We've had some good people working with us along the way, you know, to mm-hmm. advise us and help us. Some of this was trial and error on our parts, but we also had some, you know, good help, good advice coming in from the outside. Where have you sought out some of that information, or what was your... What was your approach to finding more information? Yeah. Well, one of the first things on. was when I had a question, it could have been about animal health. It could have been about grazing. It could have been about building a fence. I might ask two or three or four different farmers that I knew, and they all had a different, different way of doing things. So that wasn't terribly helpful to me. I was looking for somebody to give me the right answer. So I thought, you know, I'm going to probably have to figure this out myself. So here again, a lot of stuff we did by trial and error or I, I had some experience of working on farms with friends and, and, you know, in some of my prior work and would try some of that. Uh, but I, there are people uh, that, that I read who are into what I would call regenerative farming or sustainable farming. Uh, there are some good places like uh, not only people, but there are some good websites and things like that you can find. I did read a lot. I'm a big fan of Wendell Berry, mm-hmm. and though he doesn't really offer a lot of practical advice, he gives you really a philosophical background for this kind of farming. And so that was very helpful to me uh, and still is incredibly helpful. Now they have the Berry Center, uh, which is trying to carry on the legacy of that family in Kentucky, and, and there's some good practical advice coming out of that. There are People like Alan Williams, who's here in the uh, our area, who's probably one internationally known as a grass-fed uh, expert. Yeah, his name. If if you start doing some googling on those topics, right, his yeah, name comes up yeah. pretty readily. And he's he's actually done a consultation for us, which was incredibly it's helpful. Pretty cool. Very helpful. Does he still live in the area? Yeah, he okay. he does. He lives close by, but he travels a whole lot. He's, you know, I'll call him no sometime doubt. to ask him a question, and he'll be in Canada doing a workshop with uh so basically a con- there, yeah. serve as a consultant yeah now yeah. okay that's fantastic and yeah incredible knowledge to have yes. on the farm yeah okay well with those topics that you just mentioned i think we're going to go ahead and take a break here 
because when we come back on the next episode, we're going to get into your current farming system and a little bit of an introduction to regenerative agriculture. So we will be back. As always, you can find more information on our website or in the show notes after the show. And we always want to acknowledge and thank our primary sponsor, the Mississippi Natural Resources Conservation Service, for their support of this podcast. Thanks for joining us for Coffee and Conservation. To find out more about the topics discussed, visit the REACH website at reach.msstate.edu or the Mississippi State University Extension Service website at extension.msstate.edu.